Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Memories are a funny thing. When we recollect a story, sometimes there are bits of embellishments, and maybe something gets romanticized for drama's sake. And who can say back in the 19th century what was truly accurate? Today, we can freely research digital materials from historical museums, educational institutions, state archives, and local newspapers, all from the comforts of our home. In this search for truth, we find out some very interesting facts that were left out of the history books. Thanks to historians like Caesar Becerra, who diligently worked for years to seek out the real story. For those who may not know our Miami history, there's a woman by the name of Julia Tuttle, who is considered the mother of Miami. She's described as a businesswoman who owned the property upon which Miami was built, and she's considered the only woman to found a major American city. Now hold on! She is not the only woman to found a major city. Indeed, there was another mother of Miami. In fact, Mary Brickle and her husband William had far more influence in business, more property, and came here almost 20 years prior to Julia to homestead along Miami River's south shore. How did we get it so wrong, and how do we know this is the real truth? Joining me today is Cesar Alejandro Becerra, a South Florida historian, journalist, author, character actor who gives life to historical figures, and a diehard traveler who once traveled all 50 states in one year to rediscover America because that's what Caesar does. He doesn't just talk about history. He immerses himself into it and lives it, which is what makes him the ultimate storyteller. Welcome, Caesar. It is so good to finally have you here on the SoFlo Weird Show. Oh, Mia, it's so good to be here, and uh, I'm honored you put it that way. I like to go out and, and literally be at the places where things happened, and, um, you know, it, it really helps infuse in the modern day, you know, how far we've come. Now, because this show or this episode is about notable pioneers, those who have not received as many accolades as they should have in the history books, I would like to talk about the most popular version of how Miami began to develop, and that's the story of how Julia Tuttle, also known as the mother of Miami, enticed railroad tycoon Henry Flagler to expand his railroad from St. Augustine further south to Miami with an orange blossom. So give us the skinny on this particular historical account. Well, that exactly is what you would be hard-pressed to find anything else but that in many, many places. So that is, you got it. Orange blossoms entice this railroad tycoon after, you know, the great freeze of 1894 and then the back-to-back -back one in 1895 early on, about a month apart. All these things uh, were really a beautiful, romanticized, clean kind of delivery. And it really was something that was delivered in mass in the boom of the 20s. And it stuck and it stuck really hard. And there's a lot of reasons why it stuck. But if you go into, you know, and I'm only the tail end of a lot of people that have come before me that have started to find out information 
here's some startling things that we now know. It very well may not have even been an orange blossom in terms of the orange. It might have been lime uh, cutting. Ah. It's a new new understanding from uh, James Ingram, who uh, delivered said, you know, but even Ingram's own words say that he himself, not Julia, but he gathered uh, all sorts of clippings, not just orange blossoms. Later in the sentence, he mentions that he, he shows uh, uh, Flagler, I think, an orange uh, tree branch or something. But even he admits that it was several different tree clippings. And in the next sentence, and two contracts from the Brickles and from the Tuttles, uh, or Julia Tuttle, and then from the Brickles. You know, right off the bat, there's a big problem in, in the teens when, when Ingram gives a talk at the Miami Women's Club and that gets published. So we have a very different story of, of the, the final story. And then I love that you use the word entice. This is one I've been working on a lot, you know, and again, it's romantic. Orange Blossom, moving this massive tycoon to spend a, a, a god-awful amount of money to move down to Miami. Well, interestingly enough that you have to look at, and to this I credit Larry Wiggins, uh, a local historian who, who actually broke the story about the whole, it is more complicated than just the orange blossom that there was this uh, other clippings. But Larry and I were talking about a month ago, and he said, now position yourself just right. The freeze happens, and right after the freeze, the whole citrus industry and a lot of industries are, are done for because there was back-to-back, not just one. You now have a situation where everybody's out of work. You now have a situation, you have the perfect moment to hire cheap labor to bring your railroad further south. So the enticement is not necessarily an enticement, an enticement in the story, because you're saying here's orange blossoms, so they have to do something, you have to entice. But actually, if you think about it, Fire was not going to just move heaven and earth because these blossoms came to his door. You know, it's a far more, as every story is, I'm not going to say, this is the only story in America that has been, you know, uh, twisted, 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 embellished, right? Well, embellished and what have you. So the origin story of Miami, I've been kicking about the adage orange blossom 2.0, reimagining, <laughs> reimagining the origin story of Miami with the Brickles, because the Brickles had a lot more leverage than people think. When you start reading the papers early on, not only is the Brickles and the tu- and Julia always mentioned together and always kind of like, these are the two founding families, um, but you have to wonder, well, what happened later when Julia pulls ahead? Right. Why does she, why does she get, you know, the sole credit? I, I don't understand. Well, number one, uh, Julia was quite the socialite, quite connected, quite vocal. The Brickles, remember, were very kind of quiet people, not very, um, you know, into the limelight. Um, They kind of let their empire do the talking, you know, what they had, the land, basically. And so that's one thing. I remember that for many years, historians all agree there were no, there's no photo of Mary Brickle. Uh, Four of William, but none of, of, or three of, then we found a fourth of William, but none of Mary. So in the story of giving credit to somebody, if you don't have a picture, you're already kind of down the down the line. I guess it'd be considered kind of considered like a silent partner, you know, like some people do in business. I don't know. Well, that's a neat. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Mary ends up being not just a silent partner behind the scenes, but the person handling things for the Brickles. 
In other words, um, not only is she dealing with Flagler and Ingram and et cetera, but there was a deposition done on a lawsuit that Mary took to the Supreme Court. Now, let's just pause here, Mia. At a time in place where women didn't have the right to vote, a lot of them were marginalized. Sometimes, the, you know, you go up to this counter and the men, men had to pay. Here is Mary Brickle fighting a case to the Supreme Court of Florida. And I, I, I have to say, you're not somebody until you get taken to task and sued. It was, she was sued by the city of Fort Lauderdale over riparian rights. That's not the case. In the case, James Ingram, Henry Flagler's right-hand man, is interviewed, and they kind of want to know how were things in the early days of my, how were things done? And they trip up in a way and say, so tell us about dealing with Mr. Brickle. And Ingram interjects, well, actually, I dealt mainly with Mary Brickle. Now, that's astounding because you now have to see the story of when you mention the Brickles as really Mary is in charge. And by that, I mean, um, Mary actually, by, by a great historian named Beth Brickell, not related to the Brickles, it's a Brickell, but she finds out that all the land is in Mary's name. So if you were to take this all to court and your honor, who are we talking to? You're talking to Mary Brickle here, if you want to get to the brass tacks. So there's a lot of new stuff that, are, that is coming to light that Mary was very astute, probably because we, we also know that William always kind of lost his cool on many occasions and maybe had lost his sense of uh, mind. You know, there is the kind of grumblings of the fact that he may have had early Alzheimer's, but mainly Mary was dealing with a lot, even while William is alive. Okay. So you know, there's conjecture as to why that all is, but there, you know, there's also a case to be made, you know, when William got mad at, at, at Flagler, he never crossed the bridge to the other side except for one court case to the north bank of the river. So William has this kind of reputation of kind of like blowing it. And it looks like Mary took over a lot of the negotiations. I think what really is important to know is that the story did change. And it changed to this kind of rosy package. And there's reasons. Uh, Joe Kinech, another historian, wrote a fascinating article called Not Everybody Liked the Brickles. And why did he say that? Well, the Brickles made a lot of interesting kind of enemies in a way. Not not fervent enemies, like I'm going to kill you, but the Brickles were very careful in selling their land. And that ticked off a lot of people. People wanted to get things moving and they would not sell. They would hold on to things for a while. So they knew full well what they wanted to do with certain parcels. The Brickles had the post office on the south bank of the river and refused to give that up. The first day that Miami's incorporated, when they do the gavel that they just finally signed, and they say, well, what's the first order of business? The first order of business, a little bit of an angry crowd saying, we have to move the post office from the Brickle store <laughs> to the north bank. So you already have the Brickles in the way of kind of like, progress. Well, let's just let's just back up a yeah, second. Yeah. I, let, let's just go a little bit back and let's explain how the Brickles were integral in this land deal. Now, I know they had land along the New River in Fort Lauderdale, correct? And I think some in Palm Beach. So explain that kind of um, involvement that they had, that they had to give the land even to get to Miami. Yeah. So Brickle, uh, William Brickle, uh, goes to California early in his life in 1849. He makes a little bit of money, but we believe not too much money. And the reason we know that is if he made a lot of money, he would not have gone on to the gold rush in Australia where he goes to get, he really makes quite a bit of money there. 
he brings all that money back to the United States after he marries Mary in Melbourne on uh, uh, May 22nd of 1862. Uh, he takes all that money as he thinks about it for like five long years. He doesn't do anything but thinks about it. Um, and he decides to go ahead and invest in Florida. Now, why does he do that? Um, Brickle is already twice an adventurous guy. To go across the United States in a wagon to the gold crush, gold rush is amazing. To go to Australia on a literally almost two and a half month trip to get to Australia and go and start literally town and, and open up a hotel. He's an adventurous guy. This guy is not going to just sit around and get a what I call a turnkey business. He won't. He yeah. wired for adventure. So he picks a part of the United States that is still the last frontier. He picks Florida. But does he buy a couple hundred acres? Does he buy a dozen acres to put his house? No. William Brickle, surprisingly enough, buys 2,780 acres of land in 1870. Wow. Now, let's wow. just pause there. <laughs> you know, what in the heck is somebody doing with 2,000-ish acres of land at a time where that's so overkill it's not even fathomable? Yeah, like, and people didn't even want to come here. I mean, they we were mosquito-ridden. People didn't think we could build here. I mean, it was a kind of a gamble. Right. You know? Right. Okay. And and it's been said on time and time again that one of the great reasons, and I, I, I even agree with this, and, and, and I'm not here to boot julia off but one of the reasons that julia gets the moniker is that she has these glowing letters and these premonitions and these moments where she tells ingram even years before uh you know, in cleveland that you know I, I have this dream one day that you know, this little town is going to blossom into this big city and and yeah she was a visionary but you also have to see that what is the weight of 2780 acres of land in 1870 I don't think somebody's just doing that to do it. That's somebody putting a big hook for the future. And mm -hmm. that's just as big a hook. Not to mention that Julia knows, she knows this because she includes uh, the Brickle in the deal and she kind of has to. I mean, she's kind of in a, right. she doesn't have all the, you know, if you look at the fact that, you know, you got to move the train from West Palm Beach to Miami is he has to go through Fort Lauderdale and he has to actually leave West Palm, interestingly enough, the first thing that gets given to Flagler is 125 sneaky little acres that nobody knows about in West Palm Beach that even before he moves, he has to literally deal with the Brickles just to leave West Palm. And then you have an immense amount of acres in Fort Lauderdale where there is no debate that the Brickles are the father or mother of, of Fort Lauderdale because they own it long, lock, stock, and barrel. But when you get to Miami, you have to understand that when the city is laid out, half the city is on the North Bank and half the city is on the South Bank. That is the city of Miami. And to ignore half of the city is, is kind of rough. However, Mia, you have to understand that if you're in Miami in 1896, you perceivably see that the only city that's there is north of the river. And that's because there is no bridge. And Mia, the, the bridge is kind of everything in perception, but also contractually, the Brickles knew that they would be in a disadvantage if the bridge wasn't built across the river before the railroad got here. And guess what? 
they signed a contract four months before Julia does to that light that forcing Flagler to sign that he would build the bridge across the river before he got that choo-choo train down here. And guess what? He didn't. And there were problems. And we now know from Graham, his land kind of surveyor, or the per- person is getting all the land ready for sale. He writes to Flagler and says, listen, we have a problem. The brickles are getting sore. We have a contractual issue we're not taking care of here. And so for many, in fact, for five or six, seven years, there was no bridge. So the city of Miami booms on the North Bank and the South Bank is ignored. Well, you can't get there. So you have that issue, but you also have the sneaky issue that we now know pretty accurately that Flagler was already looking to go south. You know, he wasn't really going to Key West because he didn't, never wanted to go to Key West. He wanted to put the railroad through the Everglades to Cape Sable, but he is already in his mind knowing what he's going to do as this kind of future opening of the Panama Canal and going after uh, tourist issues in Cuba. And so if he is already knowing that he's going south, then what lands have more leverage? The lands to the north of a, of a particular river or the lands to the south? I, I counter with the, the lands south of any river are going to be highly more leverageable. Um, and that's why the Brickles had to be part of that contract. You know, it'd be, it would be impossible, but it would be very expensive and it would be very uh, detrimental to a deal. So she she really is considered like another another mother of Miami. The first person that phrases that in that way is no other than Jane Wood Reno in 1959. Ah. So 1959, there's a resurgence of an interesting article, a series of articles that is called Women You Should Remember. And Jane Wood Reno has the audacity (laughs) in the light of all these historians and books to start the series of Women You Should Remember with Mary Brickle, not Julia Tuttle. That comes on the second uh, weekly, you know, the second serialized uh, portion. And she has extra audacity to say, along with Julia, Miami's yeah. other mother. So the other mother moniker starts with Julia, ironically. One of the great moments in my life was to get a letter handwritten from Janet Reno, from the Attorney General's office, during the time she was in office, telling me that mother always said that Mary got, basically, I'm paraphrasing, the short end of the stick in terms of recognition. But you know, now you have Janet Reno to back up what the mother was saying, in case we don't have uh, Jane Wood Reno to say, well, what does she really mean? Well, now we have Janet Reno, who is no you know, wallflower either, you know, when we get into this moniker of the mother of Miami, another thing I want to point out, and I think it's very important too, is the actual, you know, term mother, you know, caring, watching over, compassionate, you know, comes to mind, we hope, you know. Upon her death, there was an interesting ad taken out in the paper by the African-American community. The African-American community binds together, raises some money and takes out an ad to tell the world how much they are hurting over the loss of Mary Brickle. Now, why is that? Mary Brickle had a tradition of lending out money without any contractual, especially during uh, one of the different downturns in Miami. I think it was 1907. She was known to literally hand out loans and money to African-Americans in particular 
without any sign cut with at, at their pace to pay her back on the day that she passes and the immense long line of African Americans that came to her house to bid her adieu, which is epic. I also have a great story by Enid Pinckney from the daughter of the mother who told the story that there was a moment where an African American family had a burning cross in their yard and they were told they are not welcome in this neighborhood. And Mary settled that dispute by purchasing that land in their name. And that was that. Wow. So, you know, you have a lot of interesting moments where the term mother is really, yeah. really fits, you know, and I'm not saying it doesn't with Julia, but, you know, there's a softness on Mary's part. I want to thank you for your time, but more importantly, Importantly, I want to thank you for your due diligence in your research and your digging for the truth and then getting that story out to the people. I wouldn't say that you're rewriting history, but I would say that you're adding to our history. And it is just so important. And as a native Floridian, I, I, I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And uh, it's an ongoing passion. Thank you for all you do, Mia. That was historian Caesar Becerra setting the record straight about the other mother of Miami, Mary Brickle, who was snubbed from South Florida's history. To see photos of Mary, go to SoFloWeird.com. Next up, he may not be considered a pioneer, but he was quite a character and worth noting. A Florida frontiersman, he was a cracker cowboy with a love for moonshine. This story can be found in Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. One of the most colorful characters in Florida's history was a rugged cracker cowboy named Bone Mazel, who loved horses and whiskey. Born Morgan Bonaparte Mazel in the settlement of Horse Creek in 1853, he was the son of one of Manatee County's earliest pioneers, Morgan Mazel. Bone stood a lean six feet tall, spoke with a lisp, and had skin tanned like leather. He grew up in the saddle working the cattle ranges between Orange County and Okeechobee for big cattle barons like the Parker Brothers and Zeba King. In those days, Florida cowboys were known as cracker cowboys, cow hunters, or cowmen, and the scrub cows they herded were often called cracker cattle, a scrawny breed that evolved from the early Spanish cattle. According to one source, the word cracker is derived from the sound made by the 10-foot-long braided rawhide whips that were snapped or cracked from cowmen during the cattle drives. Bone never learned to read or write, but he had an uncanny ability for remembering hundreds of cattle brands and whom they belonged to. Of course, this was a good skill to have, since he also did more than his share of cattle rustling. But he was also known as a generous man and a legendary prankster full of humor. Bone, who was said that hard drinking would kill him someday, got so drunk one night that he passed out. A group of fellow cowboys decided to play a trick on him, so they carried him to the cemetery and laid him down between two graves. The men then hid in the graveyard to wait for sunrise. The next morning, Bone woke up, rubbed his bloodshot eyes, looked around, and said... Here it is, Judgment Day, and I'm the first one up. 
There is an unconfirmed tale about the time Bone got revenge on one of Florida's cow towns for some slight forgotten by history. A circus had set up near the railroad tracks, so Bone waited for the big top to fill with people and then tied a rope from the tent to an outbound train. When the train pulled out, so did the circus tent. In the 1890s, Bone gained a notorious reputation for cattle rustling. He was arrested several times for changing brands on cows and hogs or for branding unmarked livestock. There were rumors that some of his cattle rustling was done for one of the big cattle ranches. In 1896, he was convicted of rustling and sentenced to two years in the state penitentiary. Bone's loyal friends circulated a petition asking that he be pardoned, but were told he would have to serve some time in prison before that could happen. So, wearing a new suit bought by the same friends, Bone boarded a train and headed for prison. When he arrived, the warden gave him the grand tour and invited him to dinner. After eating, Bone said, Well, now that I've served time, can I have my pardon now? He was pardoned and boarded a train the next morning for home. When the artist Frederick Remington visited Florida in 1885 to study the cattleman, he used Bone Mazel as the model for his well-known painting, A Cracker Cowboy. Although Bone never realized it, this would be his ticket to everlasting art fame. His likeness appeared in Harper's Weekly and in a metropolitan New York newspaper. Remington wrote of Bone and his cohorts in Harper's Weekly. As a rule, they lack dash and are indifferent to riders, but they are picturesque in their unkempt, almost unearthly wildness. Remington preferred Western cowboys over Florida cowmen, but his painting is an excellent depiction of a Florida cowman of the 1880s. On July 14, 1921, Bone Mazel went to the Atlantic Coastline Depot in Arcadia, Florida to send a telegram to the Likes Brothers Meat Company in Tampa asking for a loan. Afterward, he lay down on a waiting room bench. The station agent, Robert Morgan, told Bone to sit up and asked if he was okay. Bone replied, Yeah, I guess I better sit up because if I lay down, I might die. The agent left for lunch, and when he returned, he found Bone sprawled out on the floor. The local doctor was summoned to check him over. Without examining the body, he took one look at Bone and pronounced him dead. A bystander protested, Why, you didn't even test him to see if he's dead. To which the doctor replied, Don't need to. That's old Bone Mazel. If I tested him, he'd test 90 proof. Morgan Bonaparte Bone Mazel died at the age of 68 and was buried in the Joshua Creek Cemetery near Arcadia. On his death certificate, the doctor listed the cause of death as moonshine, went to sleep, and didn't wake up. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. Stay weird, everybody.